Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zoja, and I'm joined by... Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute and... Dalibur Rohash, also with AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're thrilled to have our guest back. Um, Dr. Ulrike Franke is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and she leads the ECFR's Technology and European Power Initiative. And we've had her um, as one of our first guests um, as we're launching the podcast. And today we're thrilled to have her back to give us the take on Germany. Now, Ulrike, in your absence, we have been complaining and gossiping and <laughs> rolling our eyes at Germany. Analyzing, <laughs> analyzing. It's hardcore analysis. Um, and, and we want to... We want to give it a fair shot today, um, and that's why we have you here to help us basically make sense of, I guess, your take on, on how Germany has evolved um, during this war, because it's been... A ride. It's been an up and down. Um, it's been a lot of media attention on Berlin, mm. the coalition, the delays, the attitudes, the changing attitudes. And maybe we can start off before we go into really the understanding of Ukraine and Russia and how that's changing. Um, I know you've been doing and your colleagues a lot of work on the military budget. So maybe we can start with that, um, the Zeitenwende budget, let's just call it that way. What does it mean now? At the beginning of the war, we had, what was it, three days into the invasion, Olaf Scholz going in front of the Bundestag and announcing this huge sum. But it, then a debate was started in terms of where this money is going to go, um, what are the shortcomings and the gaps in German defense. So now, almost six months into the war, can you give us kind of the take on what the Zeitenwende budget actually is? Yes, sure. So uh, thanks a lot for having me uh, again. And um, I'm not surprised that you say you've been complaining or rolling your eyes on at, at Germany's uh, Ukraine policy and foreign policy over the last few months, because that's that's exactly what I what I hear from many external and and yeah foreign observers. Uh, interestingly enough, and maybe we can talk a little bit about this. I still don't feel that this criticism has actually reached Berlin. Really, I mean, in every interview, Olaf Scholz basically says, "Oh no, but our allies are super happy with what we're doing." I'm like, I mean, come on. If people call me and say we're not happy, they probably also called you. You know, just a guess. But anyway, okay. So the Zeitenwende. Um, so as you said, uh, on the 27th of February, so indeed three days um, into the war, uh, the German Chancellor went in front of the, the German Parliament and gave this speech that's now known at the, at the Zeitenwende speech. Um, and indeed, he used this word, which is kind of, you know, the turn of, turn of the times. But the funny thing is, as you just said, and everyone else also said this, um, a lot of people understand this, this speech as Olaf Scholz announcing at Zeitenwende. 
Funnily enough, even though he does use this word five times in the speech, and he actually doesn't doesn't proclaim a Zeitenwende, he just states mm -hmm. that one is happening. So already there, you have a bit more passivity, exactly. So you have a bit more passivity than, than many people have kind of read into this, this speech. So it's less kind of him saying, we're going to change all of our policy, and now things really are different, and more saying, the world has changed. Right, it's, it's more passive than 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 active. But nevertheless, he also something happened to us. Exactly, exactly. Something happened to us, rather than we need to change something. And um, even though, of course, and this is where I get to your your question, he did announce um, a number of changes, and most importantly, or kind of most practically uh, or immediate, was this announcement of 100 billion euro to be spent for the German armed forces for the Bundeswehr. Um, in in addition to like normal defense spending, which you know, is somewhere in the in the high 30s, low 40 billion um, uh, euro per per year usually. So the hundred million, a uh, hundred billion is quite a lot of money, and this money is to be spent on a number of things. Um, uh, by the way, this number, this 100 billion, it sounds kind of nice and round as if they just kind of made this up, but it, it didn't just make this up. Um, the 100 billion was a number that the Bundeswehr itself or the Ministry of Defense, I think, came up with a few, I don't know, months or years, like relatively recently, um, saying that this is the kind of money we need to buy new things, to buy ammunition, to buy equipment, to buy all kinds of things. So this is this is the number they gave and this is the number that Olaf Scholz uh, went with. Um, the list of things they're buying with this is relatively relatively long. Uh, part of it really is just replenishing stocks. I mean, there is a calculation that says um, almost 20 billion of this 100 billion need to be spent on, on ammunition alone because there just isn't enough. Um, and one of the reasons for this is that, I mean, obviously the Bundeswehr has been underfinanced for quite a long time um, and they literally had something... Um, how do you how do you say this? They basically didn't have enough material for the number of soldiers. Like it was never the idea that if you have a hundred soldiers, you would have say a hundred rifles. You would have eighty, right? It was always this kind of you know we 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 have less than we actually need, and so they're going to spend money on yeah kind of replenishing the stocks there. But they're also buying new kit. They're buying most importantly maybe F thirty five from the U S. Um, they're buying armed drones. Um, they're, they're buying, yeah, quite a lot of aerial assets. Not all goes to the Luftwaffe, or it goes to the Luftwaffe, but it also supports the, the ground forces. But yeah, quite a lot of aerial um, assets and uh, yeah, a bit of, a bit of uh, everything really, because 100 billion is, is some serious money. So you said, um, just to follow up on this briefly, you said replenishing, and that's what I understood too. But at the in the early times, there was a lot of confusion about, is any of this money going to Ukraine? Basically, you're saying maybe you can confirm that it's not. And then the second thing is that people interpreted this massively. And I read the speech, and I wasn't sure that that's the case. And now it's you're kind of confirming that or um, or confirming that it's not the case, that this is not meant to raise the military budget per year, is it? Right. So first question, does this money go to Ukraine? No, um, not these 100 billion. But of course, I think it's worth mentioning that Germany has given quite a lot of funds to Ukraine. Um, I would need to look it up again, but I'm pretty sure Germany is the fourth largest um, provider of Eight and this being all kind of humanitarian, financial, um, and military. After I think the US, the EU, and the UK, 
pretty sure that's it. But it's, if it's not exactly that, maybe it's a third or whatever. But but around that that number. So so there is some serious money being being spent here, and there's also military aid we can also talk about. But these 100 billion, no, these are for German defense. So spending on the the armed forces. Um, is this money being spent? What, what, what was your question? Whether it's being whether spent it's, on whether this will mean um, a, in, an increase in the military defense budget right. per year? Yeah, there has been a big discussion about this. So basically, Scholz said we're spending 100 billion, and we will reach the two percent goal. So NATO's two percent um, of GDP being spent on um, the armed forces or on defense, we will reach or even go beyond the 2%. Um, so I think the way it looks at the moment is that these 100 billion contribute to reaching the 2%. So in a way, it does raise the defense budget mm -hmm. because the defense budget was well below that, depending mm -hmm. on the calculation, 1 1.3 to 1.5% of German GDP went to its defense, which is less than the 2%. So the 100 billion will contribute um, to that. And the big question at the moment is what happens once these 100 billion run out? Because they're going to run over a few years. Um, mm -hmm. And there was just a story in the in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung yesterday or even this morning, um, basically where they calculated saying, okay, so we're actually not going to reach exactly the 2% this year and next year, but fine. I mean, this is, it takes a moment to spend. Then we're going to reach the, the 2%. And after 2026, we have no idea what's happening because that's when 100 billion have run out. And I can't tell you. I mean, in the way that, that Schulz framed it in the speech, one would assume yeah. that we're going to spend 2% now. But this isn't certain yet, basically. Yeah. If I may, um, there has been a great deal of sort of focus on, on, on this question of, you know, 2%. Of, 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 of GDP, probably starting with Donald Trump. Yeah. Actually, it goes back even far. But, but, but at, at the 2014, at the 2014 summit. Been a NATO goal as long as we've been alive. I mean, at the 2014 summit, there was also another metric set up, which was that 20% mm. of the defense yeah. budget should go towards purchases of major new equipment. And I think that's one of those areas where there are question marks around not just Germany's spending, but, but spending in, in, in sort of Europe more generally. You know, you can sort of spend money on, 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 on defense if you, you know, if you include the pensions and the healthcare and like, you know, we can play all sorts of accounting tricks. The question is whether you are really buying sort of hardware that is adding to your capabilities going forward. So, so you mentioned the F-35s. I have no idea what the sort of timeline on that is, uh, but you would, I would think that, you know, since that famous speech that the chancellor gave in February that there would have been sort of concrete steps and announcements made for these sort of new hardware purchases, right? Sort of like investing into sort of new, 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 new stuff. You would have, you know, contracts being finalized, maybe, you know, domestic production being ramped up in, 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 in certain areas. Is there, is there a sense that uh, there is going to be a sort of build-up on that front in terms of these these sort of new new big purchases, not just sort of keeping things as they are or or, or sort of replenishing, but 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 really building up. Yeah. So 
these purchases are happening as far as I know, and it looks that way. I, I don't think that there's there's discussion on these kind of big announcement that the drones will be bought, the F-35 will be bought. I haven't looked into, yeah, as you say, the kind of latest contracts or what the latest is on that, but but I, I have very little doubt that this won't happen. Um, in terms of domestic production, I mean, to some extent, it has actually been criticized that you know, we will buy, we will spend quite a bit of money on, yeah, American uh, kit or Israeli in case of the drones or, or you know, from, from elsewhere rather than European or, or German. Um, so there is a discussion to what extent the German defense industry needs <clears throat> to become bigger. Um, from what I can tell, there is no major change to be expected other than, yeah, those, those companies that get contracts out of these 100 billion of course they're they'll may ramp up their production lines or anything but it's not as if there's kind of a national effort to say we're gonna rebuild our defense industry and 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 do something something like that there's no funding or yeah financing of the defense industry there have been a lot of politicians saying that we need to build up the european defense industry which you know anyone who follows who has been following this topic knows that this has been a discussion that's been going on for a long time and Emmanuel Macron is the first one who's been saying this for a very long time um and and of course the EU is actually doing quite a bit on on this front but this is unrelated to both the Zeitenwende and to some extent unrelated to Ukraine I want to say because this actually came before it's just that the Ukraine war is giving yet another impetus to Europeans in general to actually you know, think about these things and realize that it's not good enough to say we live in a peaceful world and yeah, maybe we need to produce some arms, but I don't really want to think about this. I wonder if we could sort of turn to the larger meaning of Zetenwende. There's a cottage industry in the United States, certainly, and probably around the world. It's gone through a number of phases since the speech. You know, there, there was a cadre of people who always assumed that some way, somehow, Germany would become the geopolitical leader mm-hmm. of Europe. I mean, it's a sort of uh, both unfalsifiable and unrealizable goal, but, but still deeply, deeply held. And more lately, it's sort of been modified into, well, you just have to understand it's going to take the Germans some time, but just hold on, <laughs> you know, it'll all work out. And the Germans will sort of become a normal, uh, a normal power, a, a normal free world power, if I can just use that, that shorthand. Rika, what's your take on whether that's credible, possible, foreseeable, any of the above? Yeah, you know, there's a sure sign for German foreign policy analysts that they're becoming old. And this is when you no longer believe that Germany may actually become this normal country you could talk about or become this leader in Europe. And I may just have crossed this threshold. You're too young to be old. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. I mean, I'm half joking, but this is really funny because I I know exactly what you mean. We've had this discussion as as long as I can think about. Like as, as long as I've been in the business, we've had exactly these discussions about the normalization of Germany and German foreign policy. Um, this this uh, question of uh, whether Germany will become this leader in Europe, and there's always there's always the kind of same things that people say, like, uh, yeah, German leadership, but Germany, the German language doesn't even have a word for leadership, or rather, I mean, we used to have one, but we can't use it anymore because that refers to um, to Adolf Hitler, and so um, so so yeah, we've had these discussions, and I've 
I've you I've I I used to be on the side saying like yeah no over time and sure think about the past but things are changing eventually and this takes time time and everything but I have to admit I mean given the multiple shocks that we've had and not just since you know February 24th but but even before with Crimea and and all of this and so little really seems to be changing in Germany that I wonder whether we'll ever or you know within any kind of reasonable reasonable time frame arrive at this so-called normalization or this willingness to yeah do more like or be be like the other countries i think some of these convictions um that incidentally i think we talked about in the, the last um, episode i was with you they're they're so deep rooted and and the german society is so comfortable with them and so uncomfortable kind of thinking otherwise as is the political class that I think at least this will take significantly longer than I that I used to um, expect, and so yeah, I'm I'm slowly coming to the side of you know the older commentators of German foreign policy that used to see me and say, oh, how naive you are, and we never can change. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. No, I think I, I I totally get that because I went through a similar thing and people tend to forget in 2014 before annexation at the Munich Security Conference, there was the German consensus, the Munich consensus. Munich consensus, yeah. Exactly, where the Germans promised sort of a Zeitenwende, didn't they? They didn't use the word, but they said that Germany is going to take on more responsibility and this was after processing the UN abstention, what was it, um, after Libya. And and so in in all of that, um, it, it sounds like it's repeat all over again. Now, moving a little bit towards the East and Ukraine, the one thing where I didn't feel old. I had a kind of a follow-up that I'm sorry to, to interrupt, but if it's the case that it's <laughs> this maturation, shall we say, is, is either still some ways off or maybe is almost impossible for for germany to do what happens then i mean europe is changing around uh and as julia suggested especially to the east uh of germany will the world wait and if it won't if there's a, a vacuum there and i have to say that you know while the Biden administration has exceeded my expectations, I'm still not entirely sure what the long-term American commitment is going to be. So going forward in a in a Europe that's no longer on holiday and now is again caught in struggles amongst large powers, how can, can Germany sit that out and what happens if Germany does sit that out? Yeah. One sentence just on the Munich consensus, because I had exactly the same, um, I, I, I was, I was thinking exactly the same thing, um, about this being just a repetition of the Munich consensus. So this idea 2014 bunch of high level politicians stepping up to the stage in, in Munich saying Germany is going to change more responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. All the allies believed it. And then pretty much nothing happened. I'm slightly exaggerating, but pretty much nothing happened. And everyone was really, um, disappointed by that um there is one big difference between munich consensus and the zeitenwende and that's um that this time there's real money being put into uh this so so for once germans are putting their money where their mouth is um and and this is this is different so something here is is changing but um i think the it's still a valid point what's gonna happen if germany doesn't um change fast enough on in europe 
who will step in? I'm gonna say no one really. I think if if Germany isn't moving, I think you know France, especially France under Macron, they would like to take on this role, but for various reasons they can't. You know, not economically strong enough, not um, convincing enough within all of Europe. You know, especially in the East, um, Macron not unfortunately not being the right person apparently for this job, which I actually think is sad. Um, but I think that's that's the situation. So it, it's I think I think Europe will just try to muddle through. And there's still, by the way, lots of countries in in the South, and we have kind of, I mean, now two fewer, but we used to have six so-called neutral non-aligned states in the EU. Um, now Sweden and Finland have joined NATO, um, but they were already, already really close anyway, so I would barely have counted them, but there are four actual neutral states in the EU, so Austria, Ireland, uh, Cyprus, and Malta, um, and, and they're completely basically, you know, they're saying we don't want to have any of this. So I, I don't, I'm not really convinced that anyone here is stepping up. Actually, the European Union itself, you know, Brussels is trying to fill this void, but I don't think it can if the member states don't really. I think the Eastern, some of the Eastern states may want to do this. I mean, the Bolts actually have been, have definitely been pushing the debate a lot, but the Bolts are tiny. I mean, I'm, you know, really sorry, but that they won't be leading, you know, the EU. Um, and Poland, considerably bigger, but Poland is such an, such an outlier, um, an outsider in, in EU politics and so many other topics that it can't really take on this role either. So I don't think anyone is, is, is stepping up if, if Germany isn't. And what does this mean for Germany? I mean, quite honestly, maybe we need to really crash and burn before we realize that something needs to change. And you may think that maybe currently Germany is crashing and burning um, uh, with regard to, to its energy policy, which after all is, is foreign policy, as we all know now. Um, maybe this is enough and maybe this is this shock. You know, if you actually do have a winter where people are either freezing or I want to say almost more importantly, where the German economy is going down considerably, maybe this is the kind of crash that really does wake up um, everybody, so the political class and the and the the wider population. But I'm not I'm not convinced that this is that this is happening. I think one particular example that illustrates perfectly your point is is this question of military aid to Ukraine, where there really isn't any substitute for a sort of more muscular German role. And and I think it's been a major source of frustration for you know us on the podcast, but for for everybody who's watching this sort of series of you know, promises followed by delays. And yes, you know, lots of equipment got delivered. We know about the Gepards that, that got shipped to, to, to Ukraine. Um, but maybe um, it's time to, um, you know, add to our you know, little crash course in German and, and in addition to Zeitenwender to, 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 to invoke the word um, Ringtausch. <laughs> Uh, which literally means exchange of rings at the, at the, at the wedding, but, but is used in reference to these tank swaps, the sort of idea that Eastern European countries would provide Ukraine with, with equipment. And in exchange, Germany would, would sort of replenish their, their own militaries with sort of more modern G German equipment. And as to, I suppose, to avoid the impression that Germany is, 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 is providing that sort of lethal assistance to Ukraine directly, uh, but that has been a sort of source of, again, like lots of frustration. Uh, I know that um, the sort of German tech swap is is going ahead. Uh, at the same time, Poles have been complaining very loudly about uh, what what seems to be a sort of n nothing burger. Uh, I'm not sure 
you know who or what is to blame but perhaps you can enlighten us on on why you know these transfers to eastern european countries many of which are really willing to extend everything they have to to ukraine but they need you know something in in, in return like why why is this not happening on the scale you know some of us hoped it would yeah so i think it is important to note that germany did indeed has indeed delivered quite a bit of military equipment to Ukraine. And this is absolutely not contradict any of the criticism um, that that Germany has gotten and that we can talk about. But um, I think sometimes this even gets lost in translation because so often it's all about like Germany not doing anything that you're almost surprised when you look at the numbers because Germany has actually delivered quite a bit of military equipment, um, including, you know, really important stuff that Ukraine is really happy um, with. It's just that Pretty much all of this came um, came at a slower pace and came later than was hoped for by the Ukrainians and kind of hoped for by the Allies. So Germany was always kind of one step behind. In the end, they did a lot, and because Germany is a big country and, and has a lot of economic power, the numbers really are are you know important. And Germany has promised even more. This is another problem, by the way. They've promised much more than they have delivered so far. Some of it for good reason because there's training happening. Some of it. I don't know why, but I think this is, is important to put in context. So yes, Germany has been has been giving quite a lot of military uh, equipment to Ukraine, but because it was always so behind the curve and only did things once, you know, really everybody told them to, one gets the impression that Germany isn't helping at all, which is just false. Um, the Ringtausch, yeah, which indeed refers to, it's basically a circle of exchange. So the idea is that rather than Germany giving, say, a tank to Ukraine directly. Germany is giving a tank to Poland so that Poland can give their own tanks to um, Ukraine. There are basically two reasons why that's how it's being done. The first is that, let's take the example of Poland. Poland actually has tanks that it can give to Ukraine tomorrow. Germany basically doesn't. And this is another thing we're really just realizing. I mean, we probably knew this, anyone who kind of paid attention knew this, but but outsiders didn't necessarily know this. The German armed forces really have very, very little equipment to begin with. I mean, we have some, I think, 350 um, uh, combat tanks ourselves, which is really not a lot if you think how big Germany is and when you think about historical comparisons. So um, Germany doesn't actually have a lot of equipment it can just give to Ukraine because it kind of needs it itself. Um, I mean, you can make this. Make, you can ask the question of whether that's the right approach and whether we shouldn't just all give everything to Ukraine. But I think it's fair that you know German politicians think about German defense capabilities and say there's only so much we can give before um, we really have issues. So um, the idea is basically that Poland can give tanks now and then can get tanks from Germany, you know, in a few months or even a few years, and it just takes a while. But that's fine because. Poland has a few and doesn't need them immediately. And that way, Ukraine gets something immediately. So that's basically the the first reason why it's being done this way. The second reason um, why this was um, why this was created is this discussion about, you know, new, modern, Western or old Soviet 
systems um, uh, that and one can be given to Ukraine, but the other can't. Soviet. This is, you know, one of these discussions. We had a few of those in Germany. We've we've been discussing, you know, what are light weapons, what are heavy weapons, what are defensive weapons, what are offensive <laughs> weapons, and then every step of the way there was like, okay, we can help with defensive weapons, but not offensive one. We can help with light weapons, but not with heavy ones. We can help with, you know, old Soviet weapons, but not new Western ones. And so here, once again, the idea was that um, rather than giving so-called new or modern or, or Western weapons to Ukraine, one so Germany would give the, these modern weapons to an EU NATO partner, say the Balts, say Poland, and they could give their old Soviet equipment to Ukraine. Um, A, because somehow this wasn't seen as quite as provocative, and B, and this makes more sense, because the Ukrainians actually know how to use this, and it's easier to to give them that than to retrain them on on uh, new uh, or more modern or just Western, so different um, equipment. As far as I can tell, even this um, this distinction has also been muddled down a bit, um, and now more Western stuff is being delivered by other partners. So, so yeah, let's see how long this this holds. But at least the the narrative in, in Germany or the argument in Germany was to say we shouldn't, or the the NATO consensus apparently is not to give Ukraine Western equipment, but rather equip them with kind of old Soviet things that. A, they can use and that some Eastern Europeans have in stock. But these are the kind of two reasons why the Ringtausch was was uh, created. And it doesn't seem to be working. And quite honestly, I'm going to tell you, I have no idea why. And I haven't heard anyone really come up with a good reason why, other than there somehow being, and I don't want to create conspiracy theories, but something doesn't seem to be working on the German side. And I honestly can't tell you what, because somehow there seemed to have been a major misunderstanding um, or promises, but I don't know. Somehow Poland got the impression that they would be getting much more from Germany for these tanks that they already have delivered to Ukraine. And and yeah, somehow there was a miscommunication or a misunderstanding or something more nefarious. I really can't tell you, but um, yeah, apparently this has broken down and, and is not really happening. And the Poles and I think also a few others are really annoyed about this and I can't tell you what's going on and I know a bunch of German politicians that don't know either. Um, so I, I really just don't know what's what's happening there. And hence the term Scholzing was created, <laughs> um, which um, indicates promising something over and over again and not delivering, at least at the right time. But um, but it's interesting that you're saying we haven't made sense of that. Uh, us here, we were complaining and rolling our eyes um, at that, but we couldn't make sense of it neither. And by the way, one note, indeed, this discussion that you described very well between offensive, defensive, light and heavy and Soviet and Western, that's been present in Germany as well as all, everywhere in the West, mm -hmm. including here we created early on taboos. This cannot be delivered. This would be so provocative. We had a Biden op-ed about why this range and not another one. Um, and so, yeah, um, I'm, I wish we would, uh, we would not be shouting on <laughs> um, in, in this way. But I mean, often these discussions really are absurd, especially for people who know about weapons and, and really see how all these distinctions are slightly ridiculous. But I think some of these distinctions or, or this approach has come from a from a good intention, which really is this effort not to escalate 
the war or kind of not to, I don't really want to say this, but kind of not to provoke Russia, which is a bit weird because in the end, Putin is going to be provoked by what he wants to be provoked by. But but still, I think it's really important that a lot of people in, in the West and in NATO have very rightly, in my view, really tried to not create this impression that this is NATO being at war with Russia and because this would just be so dangerous. And so this is why they they came up with all these distinctions. And in a way, every time we, we push this limit every time, right? I mean, no one's talking about offensive and defense weapons anymore. And we aren't really talking about light and, and heavy anymore. And maybe this kind of modern versus, I don't know, Soviet system distinction is also going to fall soon. But but I can see I can see where this is coming from. And I don't I don't want to just say like, oh, all of this is ridiculous, even though a lot of the distinctions are ridiculous, but but I see where they're coming from and and I understand the intent behind it. But it's also sort of ineradicable. I mean, over the last week, the Russians started threatening nuclear war if we took their vacation visas away to the to the EU. So yeah. at some point they've over, you know, they've devalued the threat and you have to look at escalation as something that we are doing or, you know, fears of escalation. We're self-deterring, not actually being deterred by Russian actions in particular. And, and it's also the case that we've crossed the modernization threshold, you know, quite some time ago, but for some, and this is not just true of, of Germany, although I think German reluctance is has definitely been a factor in American decision making. So if it, I think it, it is unprovable, but I, I offer it as a hypothesis that if, if Germany had been more forward leaning, we would the whole project of uh, liberating Ukraine would be farther along, and the the alliance would be more uh, thoroughly. Uh, committed to it, but at any rate, just to go back to the main point, um, you know, at 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 some point, this this you know n- noble fear of escalation and sensible fear of escalation has outlived its purpose, mm. and actually prolonging the war, which which I'm sorry to have such a long wind up, but brings me to the looming question of the cold winter. <laughs> What, I'd just like to know sort of what the political climate in Germany is, as you understand it. Are, are they prepared to, you know, live in <laughs> sacrifice and wear an extra sweater? Or, you know, uh, because clearly uh, Putin, this is one of his few strategic cards left, is to try to, um, you know, unhinge the alliance uh, in this way. So um, it'd just be interesting to know how you read uh, uh, German public opinion in this regard, you know, political opinion even in the government. Hmm. If I can add to this, I want to offer kind of a framework so Ulrike can tell us whether this is the right way to look at it or there's another way. Um, when we're looking at energy, to me, the German discussion and in the end, the European crisis but focused on Germany is about on one side, the households, and we have all these drills and and all of that and putting the extra sweater on, but on the other side, the industry, and Mm -hmm. that's the biggest concern. And so how much does, it's complicated, but nevertheless, maybe you can help us make sense of it. How much does industry lobby 
um, push against against more solidarity and where do regular consumers stand on this? So there obviously has been a lot of polling um, on all of these issues and obviously, you know, it's always a question of how exactly do you phrase polling uh, survey questions and, and so it's, it's, it's I, I don't want to pretend that this is all crystal clear but I think what we've seen from recent polling data is that at the moment, the German society is actually quite willing to sacrifice some things and to actually change policy quite a bit over the Ukraine war. So this is both with regard to, yeah, this kind of idea of freezing in winter or, you know, turning down the, the heat in winter, but also to the policy changes we were talking about earlier with regard to military power, um, helping the Ukrainians militarily, etc. So there have been actually quite, quite a there has been an important swing in public opinion. The problem or the question I'm asking, though, is for how long will this hold on? Because I still get this feeling that secretly Germans still hope that the world will go back to normal, i.e., you know, the, the, the situation before uh, February 24th. And this will all just be temporary. And temporarily, I think the German society is, is willing to make some sacrifices um, or spend more on defense and, 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 you know, do all these things. But I very much wonder whether they're willing to do this for longer and whether we've really realized that, yeah, there really is a Zeitenwende and things won't get back to normal. I mean, we don't, not that I know what the future is going to look like, but it's very unlikely that it's going to look like um, the time um, before, before the 24th of February, even before 2014, um, anytime soon. So I, I worry about public opinion that it may swing back um, uh, rather quickly. There's a lot of discussion at the moment about, um, about uh, the coming winter. So almost half of German uh, individual households, households are being heated by gas. Plus gas, of course, is used in like, um, cooking and, and things like that. Um, and the industry uses gas, A, for um, creating energy and heat, which can partly be um, replaced by other things, but some, some industry just needs gas um, uh, for, for its production. Um, what I find interesting and to some extent intriguing is that the all German politicians, and most importantly, Robert Habeck, the economy ministry, a minister, sorry, and vice chancellor, they all keep repeating, you know, we are not going to cut gas for individual households and there won't be any limiting there. They are very much being asked to turn down the heat. Um, they're very much being asked to to limit consumptions. Prices have been going up like crazy, so a lot of people will limit consumption just by that. But the, the political realm is saying we're not going to cut, cut gas to individual households. If it comes to that, we will cut the gas to the industry, which to be honest, as a German, I find rather surprising because I would say that, you know, big picture, the German industry, the German economy is kind of more important than being a bit cold in winter. I mean, yes, of course, you know, um, um, kindergartens and, and uh, um, houses for old people should be heated. But honestly, it's not as if you, you're going to die of, um, uh, of, of uh, the, the German winter if it's just 17 or 15 degrees in, in your home. But the German economy will really suffer, um, although there has been a discussion about this. But yes, it will suffer um, if, there's, if there's no more gas. So I find it very interesting that the German discussion on this is where it is. But um, maybe I'm, I'm the outlier. But yeah, so right now um, there are all these discussions about how to how to reduce energy consumption, where else to to get um, gas and oil from. Um, you may have seen that at the EU level there is now a new agreement to reduce consumption 
in all EU countries, including in those that aren't getting, for example, Russian gas. I mean, for all, prices are going up, so everyone has kind of an interest in doing that. But but still, it's kind of framed as this this EU-wide solidarity for um, for uh, those countries particularly dependent on Russian gas, which is Germany, but also um, Austria, for example, um, even more than Germany, and I think Italy. Um, so a, a lot is being a lot is being done here. Um, I think so far there is quite a bit of solidarity at the at the in the general population. Um, but one wonders how f how long this will last if the prices really go up as much as we're currently seeing, where um, energy prices have tripled, quadrupled, uh, etc. And once this lasts longer, because it's also one thing to say, you know, it's one winter. Okay, we're gonna you know turn down the heat this winter. But what? What what next? What about next year? And what after that? And at what point um, do Germans and also other Europeans say, "Well, I thought this was supposed to be temporary." We're gonna have kind of a question about the domestic and party implications of this. You know, it's a coalition government, which was has always been a little shaky uh, from the start. And I read some interesting polling the last week uh, showing sort of the Greens up. And the SPD way down, yeah, down. Uh, but at any rate, so it makes sense of that for us, if you can. Yeah. So um, yeah. So we currently have this traffic-like coalition of the the Social Democrats, the SPD, the Greens, and the the, the Liberal Democrats, the FDP. Um, and in theory, this coalition is led by the SPD, which is why the Chancellor uh, Olaf Scholz is from the SPD. However, from the very beginning, um, the two smaller parties actually together have more votes or have more um, parliamentarians. Uh, uh, than the SPD. Uh, so it's a bit of an it's an it's a very untypical coalition in, in German politics, not only because it's three parties, which is super rare, but also because the two smaller parties aren't really that small. Um, and this this has made for yeah an interesting uh, situation. Um, I think the reason why the polling is as it is, um, as you say, you know, the Greens are way up, um, SPD is is, is down, uh, the CDU, which is now outside um, the government, so that's Merkel's uh, former, no, still Merkel's party, but <laughs> Merkel is no longer chancellor, so Merkel's um, uh, party led by someone else now, um, they're, they're up as well. I think what's been happening is that Olaf Scholz is seen quite negatively by, by quite a few people. It really feels as if he hasn't played this leadership role um, that a German chancellor is supposed to play. Um, and funnily enough, this, I think, work, works for both camps. I mean, basically, those that say Germany is doing too much and those that say Germany is doing too little, like both of them basically say that that, that uh, Scholz hasn't really been leading. So I think this is part. This is one reason why the SPD got a hit. Um, the SPD also, um, I guess, lost support because we're now seeing that a lot of their policies well, either we're wrong or at least didn't work. Um, so the whole, you know, uh, trading with Russia in the hope that Russia is going to change, um, this idea of, you know, keeping a good relationship with Russia so that we can influence it. You mentioned Gerhard Schröder, the former German chancellor, who, um, you know, I almost want to say uh, very colloquially has gone completely crazy because, he's, because now he's actually suing the German parliament. Um, I mean, yeah, he was he's a Putin friend. Um, he's still kind of seems to believe that that one should negotiate peacefully with Russia to end this war. I mean, you know, he's he's definitely been um, very much outside the, the German debate. So this kind of, I think, explains why, why the SPD has taken a hit. And the reason why the Greens have gone up is that they, on the contrary, seem to have been rather right um, for a long time, namely on, you know, using or creating renewable energy sources, um, uh, not dealing nicely with autocrats. Um, also, they haven't been in government for 
many years and decades. And so you can't kind of blame them for all the mistakes in the in the past. Um, they've had uh, politicians. So Habeck, who I mentioned earlier, the economic minister, I think has done a really good job explaining things um, in domestically. So he 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 has been mm-hmm. yeah presenting himself and his party rather well. The German foreign minister Annalena Baerbock is also from the Greens and. Um, I'm I'm more critical of of her, but I think a few a lot of people also feel that she's doing a rather rather good job, um, and so I think that's that's how this is uh, coming about. That being said, you know we we are just into this new uh, government, and one should always take these types of surveys that early on uh, with a grain of salt, because at this point, because the next election is so far away, people say all kinds of things what they're gonna what they're gonna vote, um, and they may feel differently in in. I think three, three and a half years um, once this becomes uh, relevant again. But uh, yeah. There's a bunch of questions that I would have still wanted to ask you about nuclear and and many other things, but we got to wrap up. I want to ask you one last thing. Looking ahead or looking back to look ahead, public opinion and politicians, general attitudes in Germany vis-a-vis Russia. We started off with a relationship that has been very much discussed, like you um, earlier suggested, with um, change through um, cooperation, building in Russia before Soviet Union, that has failed. And now we're at a point where attitudes vis-a-vis Russia are changing. So the question is, to what extent are they do you think they're substantially changing in Germany? And and looking ahead then, the question is, or the risk is, that in the next three months um, or later, doesn't it really matter, Russia is going to sue for peace, to get a pause, to get resupply to everything. The key here will be whether the West is determined to keep the sanctions in for as long as Russia is occupying territory in Ukraine. And so where does where do German attitudes vis-a-vis that stand? What is the German debate right now in terms of decisiveness or the lack thereof to maintain or lift sanctions depending on how the situation is going? <sighs> yeah, that second question is really difficult. Um, so on the first German attitudes toward Russia and kind of more generally, my sense is, but this is hard to tell really because it's more yeah, kind of general attitudes, um, as I was saying, is that there there is an important change happening here. Also because Russia, I almost want to say, hasn't played this very well. I mean, this, this sounds weird, but I feel... No, but honestly, but I feel that, that Russia over the last few months has shown itself, or this regime has shown itself to be so... I want to say evil that even the last kind of Russia supporter you can do it you can do it Rika you can... <laughs> go ahead and, go ahead and say it yeah no I, <laughs> it's tricky I want to say Russia I mean it's always you know there it's a big country with a lot of people but but there there's I, I think there's this um even the last kind of Russia supporter or, or Russia understander as we we've been calling them in, in in Germany really has trouble to defend this regime in any kind of way and I'm saying like they played this badly um because there really are moments where if the Russian regime regime had 
acted slightly differently, I think it could have given these supporters of Russia and Germany some ammunition. For example, I'm genuinely surprised that Russia has um, limited the gas supply to Germany so much as it has, because tactically, you know, I, I'm, I don't, I'm, I don't want to give them um, advice, but I'm just thinking that had they had they kept up energy supply to um, to Germany at higher levels, there would have been people in Germany saying, see, we can still deal with them even though they are at war, which was always the, the same narrative during Cold War, right? Like we even traded with Russia during the height of the Cold War. Like this is still something that, that works and is an important um, element of communication, blah, blah, blah. Like I don't believe in this, but anyway, this has been a narrative. And, you know, had Russia, had the regime been more... Yeah, clever using this. They they could have, I think, swayed a few more people. But but over the last few months, they've just in any kind of way, and um, of course, most importantly, the war itself and Bucha and all these atrocities um, has really shown itself to be so not a regime you ever want to support. That that even the staunchest supporters of of Putin and 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 Russia and Germany, I feel, have changed their their talking points a bit. Um, so, so yes, I think there has been, there has been a change, um, uh, here, whether this is going to last, I mean, who, who hell knows, who the hell knows on the, on the sanctions. I mean, I find this, it, it really depends on how bad this is going to get, um, from a, from an economic point of view. Again, will people freeze over the winter? How, how is this going to go? How, how? how terrible will the war be i i think there definitely is a danger of solidarity fatigue um but but i can't really kind of predict this um the only thing i can say is that germany has been um a big supporter of eu sanctions um since 2014 i mean the the the, the sanctions that the eu put in place um towards russia after the the crimea invasion germany was one of the countries that has really worked to keep these up in the eu so i think that's important to note and so Judging from that, um, one would think that that this this may continue, but I think it really depends on the circumstances, which I'm un, unable to to predict. So, I, I think we'll we'll have to see. Sounds fair. Well, uh, I think this is our moment. We've gone way too long, but this has been way too interesting to wrap up. From well, it's been too long since we had Ulrika back. So that's right. <laughs> from me, Julia Zoja, and my friends. Giselle Donnelly and Dalbur Hodge. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have emerged along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea. The Eastern Front's newsletter is now live. You can sign up for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive a bi-weekly update of our newly released episodes, exclusive questions and answers with our hosts, and um, to stay up to date with the most uh, recent op-eds and articles from us on security challenges facing the Eastern Front. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. A big thank you to Ulrike Franke for joining us again today and making sense of Germany in this war. A little short-splaining. <laughs> <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode please consider subscribing rating and reviewing us thank you and until next time goodbye